Well, thank you guys for being here on this Mother's Day. Moms, we love you. Thank you for being here as well. And uh, for all of you kids who are drugged by your mom, this is going to be the perfect sermon for you because it's about reconciliation. So as we, uh, and forgiveness, but uh, no, I'm, I, I hope that you guys are here and enjoying this. We've been working on a series called Verses and we've been, I've been excited about this. In fact, it's inspired me to realize there's so much more to what uh, we call Christian life and discipline than sometimes we say. We're just like, oh, read the Bible and pray, but forgiveness and reconciliation is a key piece to whatever we are going through. And so we've been started this series called Verses back at Easter, and we've been rolling through a conversation that Jesus has reconciled us to God through his death and resurrection. And so he has made us reconcilers to this world. He's called us to get out there to be peacemakers, to be people who pull these divides that we see everywhere together. I mean, it's been a divisive week this week, has it not, uh, on the news and in the, in the social media atmosphere. There's been tons of debate and argument and yelling about FBI directors and all kinds of weird stuff like that. And it can cause us to be like, I'm done with it. Maybe you gave up on politics a long time ago. Maybe instead it's been a divisive week in your home. Prepping for Mother's Day, you know, moms, you prep for your own Mother's Day. Oftentimes, husbands, we should do a better job. But that's the reality of how things work sometimes. And so you struggle with hey, there's been a tension. And we want to talk about how to bring these tensions together. We want to discuss this. And so we've worked through these steps of confession. We've worked through the step of making it right. We've talked about the idea of forgiveness last week and it being cutting the cord, not forgetting. And now we're moving into another section of this step and this final piece of this series on reconciliation. So I want you guys to lean in and really think about this because reconciliation is a powerful, powerful thing. It's a tool many of us have forgotten God has given to us to use to bring about a transformation in this world. And really, uh, reconciliation is, a, is best defined, I think, by a particular person that, that I've seen out there. I haven't met him himself, but I've read about him in 2005 in Benton Harbor, Michigan, a man, a man named Jamil McGee was just walking down the street, kind of minding his own business, apparently. And a police officer named, uh, with the last names of Collins, Officer Collins, came up and Andrew Collins accused Jamil of selling drugs, arrested him on the spot, locked him up. Um, in fact, at the trial, Jamil was saying, this is all made up. I didn't do this. I'm framed. And of course, everybody's saying to themselves, Sure, that's what everybody says when they've been arrested for, for this crime. And as, he's, um, as they're going through it, they present the drugs that he was selling and all this stuff. So he is convicted and thrown into jail and uh, into prison. And he finds himself serving four years of his prison sentence. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Andrew Collins is himself caught for doctoring and, mis, and mis, um, miscommunicating and, and, and faking arrests and these kinds of falsifying reports. And Jamil's, Jamil's report was one of those falsified. Neither released four years of life, gone in a prison system. He is released and he's exonerated, but it doesn't really matter to him. He is so angry, he actually said he had one goal, and that was to go home, find this man, and to hurt him. Now, Collins served his own time for what he did, but when he got out, Jamil was out, and suddenly there was this opportunity for Jamil to do something when they both found themselves working in the same cafe behind a counter for a Christian rescue mission. Now, you can imagine that scene as Jamil walks in and sees the very officer who's not only accused him, but can, had him convicted, thrown behind bars, and as he said, he lost everything. 
seething anger could have risen up. Something could have gone on. And as he approached Officer Collins, who's no longer an officer at this point, but approaches this man Collins, Collins simply goes to him and says, honestly, I have no explanation. All I can say is I'm sorry. And Jamil, in that moment, doesn't attack him. He stated that was pretty much what I needed to hear. And Jamil turns from being wanting to hurt him to forgiving him. And because Jamil had become a Christian, knew that it was his job to bless this man and actually befriended him. Became one of his only friends since he had been pushed out by all of his friends from the police officers and all, and all of the different groups that had surrounded him. Jamil himself became this man's friend, became so close he comes to his family's things. These guys now tour, both having become Christians, and talk about this one idea of reconciliation. A powerful thing that can be done, I believe, only when you've truly been reconciled with God. What else could drive us to go to our enemies and say, not only will I forgive you, but I love you, and I'm going to care about you, and I want to make friends with you even. That's nuts to our world. That's crazy to some of you who are not Christians here who are guests. Maybe you're going, ah, that's a little too far. Do you understand the dangers that could be involved? Are you trying to tell me? And so we'll go over all that. I'm not here to tell you just, you know, reconcile with any relationship and bring them back into your life. We'll hear that there is, there is a whole set of things. But I want to start with this conversation about reconciliation and what it is. In fact, it grows out of two lives aimed at blessing one another. And this is important to note. See, when we are in conflict, when we're in verses against each other, there is a tension. We want to hurt each other. We want to punish each other. We want to make sure that person never, ever gets to go past go nor collect $200 ever, ever again. And so what happens is in our anger and in our bitterness, we may move to forgiveness, but it's not truly forgiveness until you've been able to bless somebody. And so you can find in your heart the ability to obey Jesus in this level of blessing your enemy. You haven't really moved to the flower box that actually creates reconciliation. If you've ever planted flowers, you know you've got to have the right kind of soil and you've got to have the right kind of conditions for those plants to grow. And the only right kind of condition for, for reconciliation to grow is indeed this very flower box of blessing the other, whether it's in your prayers or whether it's when you see each other at work or whether when you're passing the kids off because you're divorced, it's that you don't feel animosity towards that person anymore, but that you actually have the freedom to care about them and bless them. Whether it's your kids because you're a mom and you're estranged with them right now, I'm hoping that one day you can hope for blessing of each other and see reconciliation happen. I'll give you an example of what this blessing could look like. In fact, he is a man named Mutsio Fushida. I don't ever get these names right. Mitsuo Fushida was actually the lead pilot at, the, at Pearl Harbor. He is the very one who actually said, was, gave the order, Torah, Torah, Torah. And he said, in the, in the death of 2,300 American soldiers was his most thrilling event in his whole illustrious career as a Japanese pilot. So you can imagine, we probably don't like this guy too much, right? And yet... He is probably one of the best Japanese evangelists the country has ever had. How did he go from the guy leading the kamikaze pilots to the guy evangelizing Japan, a country that still needs to hear the gospel this day? Well, one day, eight years after, after Pearl Harbor, he met a friend who had been imprisoned in American camps. 
And in that, in that, he asked him, what was it like? Kind of comparing the differences, wanting to find out how bad it was or whatever. And he received the story of this young 18-year-old girl who had gone to all of the Japanese prisoners and served them as a volunteer over and over and over again. And one day, this friend of, of, um, of this man told him this story that this 18-year-old was coming, serving him, and he says, why are you doing this? And she replied, because the Japanese soldiers killed my parents. Well, it blew his mind away. He's like, what are you talking about? How can you, how can you say that, that you're, you're willing to serve me if the Japanese killed your parents? He's like, listen, my parents were missionaries in Japan before the war started. The government rounded them up, convicted them as spies, and executed them. And in my anger, three years after the event and finding out what happened to my parents, I realized my parents loved these people. They gave their lives to serve these people. They wanted these people to know Christ. And she said to herself, if I know they would forgive them, so I must do so as well. And she realized not only that, she had to go further. She had to bless them. These scriptures were in her mind. In Luke 6, 27 through 28, Jesus' very words says, but I say to you who hear, he just finished saying, listen, you know, it's, you can love your enemies, and, but or you says to love your neighbors, but hate your enemies. He says, listen, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. But I say to you, love your ex. Do good to the one who has hated you. You know, if they curse you, bless them. Pray for them if they were on you, abusing you. That's, that's crazy talk, but that's Jesus' words. It's the way of Jesus. And this girl lives this out and blows this man's mind. In fact, Fushida hears this story, doesn't understand it, that he, she could be a blessing to the Japanese who had killed her parents. And in his searching, he meets another man who had come to Christ while in an American prison, given a Bible, read it, came to know Jesus, leads Fushida to Christ from these two stories. And in the midst of that, he becomes the evangelist of Japan. Do we understand that our lives have to be in a level of blessing each other? That you can't just say, I forgive without actually moving to, I'm praying a blessing. I long for that person to know Christ. I long for you to be reconciled to God. I don't want you to go to hell, and I don't want our relationship to be horrible. I want to be able to have a relationship when I see you. It's not uncomfortable that when I see you, I love you, and I know I've been praying for you. That's the heart of where reconciliation begins, and it transforms people. It is the message of Jesus to love your enemies as he did even on the cross. Now, forgiveness, however, is not reconciliation. Let me make that clear. Remember what I said, it takes two people who long to do that. Forgiveness takes one person. Reconciliation takes two. And I need to note that because some of us are thinking right now, well, I've forgiven them, that means I'm reconciled. No, uh, you can offer reconciliation, but that doesn't mean it will always happen. It takes two people to reconcile. It takes two people longing to bless each other in order for that relationship to be fixed. Look, you can have an ex-spouse, and if that ex-spouse does not want to have a relationship with you, you can offer the opportunity for reconciliation as a sense of blessing and a good mutual conversation and relationship, but if they don't want it, it isn't going to happen. But you should always remain in the positive desire to see a good relationship. Not just for your kids, but because you're a Christian. But because you follow Jesus Christ. Because he's called us to bless our enemies. This is a radical way of living. It is beyond forgiveness. It is a Jesus way of living, and it's what he's called us to. It is how we're going to see healing in our world. It is how we're going to see these divisions dissolved and brought together. It's what peace 
making is all about. But no, if you are reconciling, if you bring about a reconciled relationship, the relationship will never be the same. Do you hear me? It's not going to be the same because what you have is a mended relationship. Reconciliation is a mended relationship with clear boundaries. Sometimes that relationship will be better than it was. Wouldn't that be nice? Moms, if it's your kid that you're estranged from, wouldn't you love to have a reconciliation moment with your child and have a better relationship than that turmoiled one when they were junior hires or high schoolers or college students? Some of us, wouldn't we love to have a better relationship with some of our coworkers who are just absolutely driving you bonkers, but when they've confessed and repented and you've forgiven, then now you can actually connect with them? I mean, these are all the kinds of things, but it's never the same relationship. Sometimes you're reconciled, but it just isn't close. It's a mended relationship with clear boundaries. And I mean this, hear me, with clear boundaries. Reconciliation is not just opening your life up, so that somebody can back to someone right away. That, that can't happen. Some of you guys are actually thinking, I'm saying, man, this guy abused me all of my life. My stepfather's still in my life and I got to see him today at Mother's Day and I don't really know how to deal with that. You're telling me I got to just reconcile and land back in my life? No. No. I'm not saying that at all, actually. I am saying that there's clear boundaries you need to draw. You can be blessing that person and work through forgiveness, but that doesn't mean you have to be close. You've been caring about that person, but that doesn't mean you have to let them into your life and allow them to return to the dangers and the abuse that had occurred. Don't hear me saying that. That's not what Jesus is saying, as we will see. What he is saying is our heart has to be free. And we have to always be willing that if God leads us to do the hard things of building a relationship back, we're ready to do so. But it always takes two. It always takes two. And this is important because some of us, we have the misconception that reconciliation is an ending. It's like running across the finish line. Look, you you confessed your sin. Awesome. Maybe you've tried to make it right. Great. Maybe you've forgiven somebody and you're living in blessing. And so now you're reconciled. No. Now you're starting the marathon. Start thinking of reconciliation as a journey, not as an end point. Too many of us go, oh, they reconciled the relationship. No, that means they began a journey of reconciliation, a journey surrounded by appropriate boundaries, a journey that's going to build a good relationship. God does this with us. He just didn't say, hey, come on back in and now go live like ever you wanted. Go sin again, go have fun. It doesn't matter. You can hurt me all you want. That's not God's way. He draws boundaries. Notice in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 6, he says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises everyone whom he receives. God turns like a father. Look, we do this with our children, don't we? If you have kids, moms, you don't just go like, well, the kid will figure it out. If he drinks the Drano, it'll be okay. No. You draw a line. You're like, put that down. Give me that. That's no. You put a lock on the mechanism. You make sure those kids can't get in there. Some of you have gotten so scared, you hover like a helicopter. And you're like, don't break anything, don't touch anything. Look, we, we get boundaries. Some are too much, some are too little. But the reality is God has boundaries. If you cross those boundaries and you know him, he's going to discipline you. He's going to bring you back in. He's going to say, nope, you crossed the line, come back. If, God's, if God has boundaries with us, his children, ought we not to have boundaries with our reconciled relationships? It's important. God's just not saying this is a free-for-all. Come back into my life, yell and scream at me and punch me. I'm good with that. No, no, no. 
It also doesn't mean that when somebody has done an illegal injustice to you, that you just go, hey, whatever, you can, I'm not even going to press charges. No, that's different from forgiveness. You're, these boundaries have to exist. And so there may be a, broke, a strain on the relationship, but the relationship doesn't change. When you reconcile the relationship like God has with us, it doesn't stop being that you are his son or his daughter. It, but when you sin, it strains the relationship. It may break the fellowship. There's a distance that you guys have to deal with in the relationship, but you don't stop being his child. If you have a husband or a wife, I'm sorry, you, you can be divorced, but they're always going to be involved in your life. Isn't that true? You don't escape them. They're always there. So even if you're contemplating divorce, recontemplate it because you're never going to leave that person. That person will be there all of your life. And so you have to say, we got to have some boundaries. We got to learn how to communicate. We have to learn how to deal with this because it will always be the same. There will always be there. The strain on the relationship exists, but when it's reconciled, the relationship doesn't change. Now, what are these boundaries? Write these down. If there's anything I want you to leave this morning with, it's these three boundaries. Hugely important. The first boundary is the boundary of trust. This is, this is actually what most people are struggling with. When we say reconciliation, they're thinking, I have to let this person back into my life. I have to hug them and be with them and, and, and spend every Thanksgiving and weekends with them. And we got to invite them back up to the cabin and whatever. And, and that's not the case. Because what happens is you can give forgiveness. You can give blessing. You can give your confession, but you have to build trust. Trust, once it's broken, is not re-given. It is built. It is not just handed over. It is building block by building block put back together. And this is so key because some of you guys, if you're, if you're a teenager in the room or you're a college student in the room and, and you've had some tension with your parents or you're young, you might have this problem and later in your life, just know it's easy to build, it's hard to build trust, it's easy to break it. All it takes is one time making a big mistake out of something, your parents are like, I don't know if I can trust you right now. Same thing is true in a reconciled relationship. I may have a connection with somebody and rebuild that relationship, but I've got, but that's going to be a rebuilding of trust. And Jesus, actually it starts with John the Baptist, he kind of makes it clear. You can't just have somebody use words and not live it out. John the Baptist was standing there amongst all these people, baptizing these crowds of people who wanted to be right with God. And they were repenting of all these different sins. And these are Jewish people and non-Jewish people all kind of saying, I need this freedom, I need this freedom. And so John said, hey guys, if you're a tax collector, stop taking as many... Stop taking money from people that's not yours. If you're a soldier, stop making people do things that isn't right. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you're going to confess your sins way back here at the beginning, don't just let it be about words. If you owe money or you owe that lawn equipment to your neighbor because you broke it, pay it back. If you still have tension with your family member because you haven't resolved the issue, even though you may have confessed it, you need to make it right. Don't just have words. you got to rebuild trust. See, the problem so often is we just let people in our lives before we've ever rebuilt trust. And in the cases of abuse, in the cases of those kind of things, to be quite honest, you may never fully rebuild that trust until eternity. As long as you continue to bless that person, you're in a position where you can love and care about them and not feel animosity or want them to go to hell. That's good. But that doesn't mean the trust is built. 
Keep the boundary of trust. Build it slowly. Well, how do you build it? Simply by doing what you say and saying what you did. If you want to write that down, that's the key. Do what you say and say what you did. Think about it. How do you break trust with each other? By getting on the phone on your way to Mother's Day and there's tons of traffic and she's like, are you almost here? You're like, yeah, we're almost there. And you just got on the freeway. Don't do that. Because that really annoys me when that happens in my car. But anyway, the reality for me is that there's so much that we say about ourselves. It's just not true. Instagram people, stop lying. That's not your life. Show your food half eaten, not fully on the plate. Stop publishing the best doctored photo you can do from Photoshop. Saying, look how, look how great this was. You know, you know, take a picture of your kid wallowing in the mud or something. It's great. That's honesty. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously kidding, but let's, let's, let's be serious here for a minute. In a world in which we want to present ourselves in the best light, how can we trust each other? See, we don't trust corporations right now because when they call us, they tell us, yeah, you can get this internet line for $70 a month, plus taxes and fees and everything else. And they don't tell you that part. Well, that's the government's fault. And we go, you didn't do what you said. When the government switches words and they give you a tax versus a fee, we're like, they're doing the same thing. Stop playing with your words. Guys, do you hear how important our words are? Do you hear that what we need to do is say what we're going to do and then do it and say what you've done? Teenagers, if you're going to go out, you say where you're going to go when you go do that. If something accidentally changed when you get home, you tell your mom or you tell your dad, this is what happened, this is exactly what happened, and this is why it changed. Now, that's hard to be honest and truthful, but it's the only way to build trust. Jesus tells us even the Pharisees had a problem with this. Here these guys are, the, the super spiritual giants of the age. They would go to them for spiritual knowledge and moral knowledge. And in order for the people to believe them more, they'd say, well, I swear to you by the temple, I swear to you by the very throne and whatever, by heaven, all this different stuff. And the people were supposed to be like, oh, they're really serious now. You ever had somebody say, well, let me, honestly, it's like, what, were you not honest before that? And that's Jesus' problem. He's saying, hold on. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven for it's the throne of God. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What are you trying to hide? You want to rebuild trust in any relationship. You do what you say and you say what you've done. We become transparent. My, my, my friend um, had wound up into a gambling addiction. I don't know if you've ever wrestled through an addiction in a family or a relationship, but they're extremely difficult because they constantly break trust. You don't know when they're telling the truth. You don't know when they're lying. He had managed to siphon off part of his income in his bank account, and she had her bank account, and he had credit cards he had opened, and he had amassed this large sum. Then now it was all gone, and it was affecting his wife's income, and now she found out. Trust had been destroyed, and the only way to rebuild trust was suddenly they had to merge all their accounts, merge all of their debt, merge everything together, have no places where he could hide because he had to show everything that he did. When he drove down a place, he called her because she knew if he was in that area, he'd want to go to that casino. 
And so she would check in with him. There were all these ways to make transparency occur because the only way to rebuild trust is by people doing what they say and saying what they did. If you're going to rebuild trust with your spouse, you're going to rebuild trust with your kids, this is the only way, and it takes time. It's the, it's the starting line, not the ending line. Boundary number one is trust. Boundary number two is justice. You've got to have a boundary of justice. Jesus makes it clear. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus, there's no rocket science here. If someone sins against you, rebuke them. Point it out. If somebody's going to harm you, you don't let them. And moms, just for a second, I'm going to talk to you because you, 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 moms have a tendency to do this more than dads, although they are dads like me who do this. If you're a people pleaser, stop people pleasing. And moms, don't we have that trouble in some cases? My mom was a people pleaser. And I'd watch her on one hand say yes to somebody and say the opposite yes to somebody else. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. I guess it works. And the danger doesn't. If you want to become an embittered, angry person, people please the people around you. As a recovering people pleaser, it harms more than it ever helps. Because what happens is you, you lose yourself. You don't know your boundaries. You don't know who you are. And every injustice that occurs to you, you will let it happen because you don't want them to be mad at you. Huh? Hurt me because I don't want you to be mad at me? What? No, that's the time to draw a boundary. Let them be mad. It's their fault. That's the boundary of justice. If somebody's gone to jail for something they've done, don't go advocate for them to be released. Let justice take its course. Now, you can be reconciled, and a true reconciled person knows that they have to pay for their justice. If you truly have come to Christ, and again, I'll say this, you owe something for that lawnmower, you owe some money, just pay it back. You can't be trusted, and you really are still under the justice department. You're breaking that one too. Guys, we've got to understand justice has to stand firm. Jesus says that they sin against you, rebuke them. Now, be careful. Jesus didn't say if you smell sin on someone, point it out. We're real, our sin sinifers are real good. So that's called judgment. Oh, you're just an arrogant, proud person. Well, were they arrogant towards you, proud towards you, or did you just seize them? Because that's not your job. That's really a sin against God. And I think God's big enough to handle that one, don't you? In this reality, we like to sniff around and find sin and go, <clears throat> I need to tell you this because I love you. You know, that kind of a comment. Don't do that. Jesus gives you the structure on how to go about this conversation on this boundary. It's in Matthew chapter 18. He says, if your brother sins against who? Say it out loud. Against you. If God, or if, not God, if, if, you, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault. Hey, you just did this. Why are you yelling at me again? You know what? This relationship isn't going to work if you continue to yell at me. I'm not going to allow that right now. Now the relationship isn't broken. It's strained. There's still reconciliation, but there's a boundary of justice. And you say, no, I'm not going to allow this at this time. If they listen to you, if they repent, you've gained your brother and everybody cheered. Yay! But if he doesn't listen to you, now you take it to the next level. Bring somebody else who also saw the same thing and now you two go together to deal with that sin. 
And you point it out. And if they still, if they listen to you, you regained your brother. Yay! If they don't, okay, then now you take it to the church. What we had advised you is bring it to an, a pastor and allow the pastor to sit in adjudication, to listen and, and help kind of mitigate that conversation. People aren't hearing each other or whatever. And then let that, if it doesn't settle there, we can take it to the elders. And really what happens is it says, if he refuses to even listen to them, go tell the church. If they refuse to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. And the point here is that even in the church, there's a point at which we're willing to distance ourselves. There's a point at which there is still a, a right not to break the relationship, but to treat each other differently for a time in hopes that they may see the severity and come back. That's the goal of the passage. It's not to push somebody out of your life for good. No, to separate so they can see the severity and reconcile the relationship. None of this is about destroying relationships. It's about pointing to the boundaries so that we might reunite and make it better. And so it's hard. If you're a people pleaser, it's hard to even draw that boundary. On the other side, if you like drawing boundaries, be, be, be careful. Remember Jesus said, before you go run and tell that person their sin, check the log in your own eye first. Make sure that you have confessed your own sin. Make sure it's, you're very aware of your own problems because what you'll inevitably find when you go to point out their sin is they're already ready to point it back at you, right? Oh, four, three fingers are pointing back at me. And one finger's point, oh, see, you're just as guilty as, and we get into that whole thing. No, always begin with confession, never begin with accusing. Start by owning your stuff, and then you move forward. Does that make sense? This is Jesus talking about this boundary of justice. And so, number one, trust. Number two, justice. Number three, civility. Okay, write this down. Underline it. Then circle it. If you have a highlighter, highlight it, because we've lost this. Civility's gone. See, what's replaced, what, what originally was called civility, we called tolerance. But when tolerance became, you have to agree with me in order for you to be tolerant of me, you have lost all ability to have communication. Here's the thing. If you're the kind of person right now in this room who thinks that that person has to agree with my position before they can accept me, why do they, why do you not have to agree with their position before they can accept you? Why is it a one-way street? No, 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 no. That's not the route of civility. You want to create verses. You want to create you versus somebody else. Make them accept your position. Until Make that an ultimatum until you can have a relationship. It will not work. That is actually not the route to civility. It is not the route of reconciliation. And that will break trust and justice and ultimately this boundary of civility. Civility must be kept. It must be insisted upon where you are heard and you hear them. It must be a two-way street or else it will always break down. And so let me give you a simple piece of advice when you're on Facebook. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Amen? When the trolls start coming... And they start calling you names because you took a position. Don't squawk back. You don't yell and scream back. You don't use pejoratives. You don't use names. You don't belittle. That's not the goal. In fact, that seems to be the goal in some cases in these arguments. And some of you stay away from Facebook like crazy, like I do. But you know what? There's still times where you got to do this in your relationships, in your home, with your children, with your spouse, with your in-laws, with your in-laws, <laughs> with your in-laws, all right? 
you're going to have to have civil conversation. And you're going to learn how to, how to ignore an offense. Because sometimes you're offending people and you're hoping that they will give you a chance to get over it. I mean, I don't tell, tell me how many times I've offended my wife in the middle of an argument. I was like, oh, you're so insensitive. And she's like, ah. I'm just like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't really mean it that way. Well, how did you mean it? The way I said it. But I, I mean, I'm sorry that I said that. And, and she's so gracious to forgive me of the offense. So that we don't make up over our bickering about what we said. We actually stay on topic. You know how many of you married couples are just making up over calling each other names in the argument and you've never actually solved the problem? That's not smart. The problem's still there. It's just growing underneath the carpet. By giving, forgiving an offense, looking over an offense, you can actually pull out the issue and stay on target. And so as we think about this, I want you guys to be able to know this is what needs to happen. Now, where you're going to find your best help is this. Write this verse down because it's wrong in your notes. It's James 3.17. Big underline it. Memorize it. If you want to be civil in life, in any conversation, if you want a guide for your Facebook posts, follow this verse. If you want a guide for how you do Instagram, social media, or Twitter, whatever, follow this verse. Here's how it works. If you want a good argument, do this. First, but the wisdom from above is first pure. Have a pure and right motivation. What he means by this is go in longing for peace. Go in longing with the right motivation out of blessing and love for the other. Not an anger and discord. Blessing the other. So that's what comes first is purity. Then peaceable. The word can actually be translated as peace-loving. Are you a peace-loving person? Yo, man, I love no conflict, peace, dude. No, not that kind of peace. That is a kind of peace, but what we're talking about here is everything in order. That it's in its appropriate way. That things don't get out of hand. You ever use that terminology with your spouse or, or in your family? Things are just out of hand. That's because there's no order. There's no peace. One person talks, then the other. Peaceableness is seeking the ability to have conversation without a conflict. Let's have peace. And we want that. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. And so we need to be these peacemakers. We love peace. Well, how do you do that? First, be gentle. In your words, in the way you talk, be gentle, be respectful. Don't slam, harm, or cut somebody down. Don't insult or destroy people. That will not help you. Don't be caustic. If you cannot have a conversation with somebody and not be biting and caustic and just too sharp and too to the point, don't get on social media and be quiet. And probably don't get married because it ain't going to work real well. <laughs> get some help in how to communicate without being sharp. Gentleness is called for. And it's the ability to, to be careful and controlled in your tone and your way. Number, how else do you be peace, peaceable, he says? Be gentle and be open to reason. I once met my cousin in her first few months as a um, young married person, and uh, we had done their premarital counseling, and in the middle of all that, they came out. It was their first few months. She's like, I don't get it. We can't get anywhere. We're constantly arguing. I'm so angry. I'm ready to go home. I'm like, whoa, 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 time out, time out. And I had randomly met her in a parking lot, and I said, first of all, we told you the most difficult part of getting over your beginning of your marriage is to learn to be selfless. If you don't learn that, you're not going to make it. So start, start being selfless, and here's how you do that in an argument. Hope he's right, if we can't be in an argument in the hope to understand the other person, even in the case of hoping that they're correct about who we are and what they've said about us, 
You're never going to get anywhere. Now, that sounds weird if you're talking to a bigot or a racist or something. You're like, well, I got to think. No, I want you to think about where they are going. How did they get there? What's their story? How did they come to these conclusions? Because if you can't empathize with that person, you're never getting anywhere in a conversation. You have to be open to reason. You have to be open to thinking, you know what? You ain't God and you don't have it all down. We've got flaws in our thinking, biases in our opinions. And unless we can be open to consider maybe the other person has a point, we won't get anywhere in civility. Can you imagine if our government sat down and actually thought, maybe they've got a point. We might get somewhere. We might listen. Something might actually get done that's favorable to the, to the American public. But until, as long as we consider the other person against us, ah! there is no reasonability. There will not be peace. And so next he says, then you got to be full of mercy. Be ready to forgive. Be ready to let the person off the hook. Don't just take every offense, right? Just forgive it. Let it go. Let it pass. It's wisdom. It's right to overlook an offense. Then finally, he goes into this final piece here where he says, be impartial of mercy and its good fruits. Impartial and sincere. Don't go in assuming you're right, guys. Because we've already solved the problem. That's how guys are. We know the solution. Boom. Let me tell you how this works. I got a bottom line for you. No, no, that's a bad idea. Come in impartial. You don't judge yourself, your opinion or their, her opinion or your coworkers, wherever this is. It is an impartial stance, open to reason, not ready to prejudge the, set, the setting so that you can listen and then be sincere. That doesn't mean lie, people pleasers. We don't go like, well, yeah, that's a great opinion. And well, what's your opinion? Yours? No, I changed mine. No, tell your opinion. That means you got to know it before you go in. But you say it with gentleness. You say it hoping to be heard. And this is how civility works. You don't have to agree in the end. But the goal is to have been heard. And the goal is to have been represented rightly. The goal is to walk away to be able to explain their position, even to the point that you could defend it. That's the only route with this. If you're not going to listen and there's not a two-way street in communication of civility, they've broken that boundary. And you're not going to have a reconciled relationship. It's going to deteriorate into bitterness and lots of unforgiveness. And guys, what we have here with these three boundaries, an amended relationship isn't easy. It's not. It is difficult, but God empowers it. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and in turn, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Because Jesus Christ bore our sins, and God said, I want to forgive you. I'm open to reconcile this relationship, because he opened that door to us. We now have the same message we should be able to bring to everyone else, lest we look like we're lying. We need to do what we say and say what we've done. If we've been forgiven as God has forgiven us, we forgive others as he's reconciled us, so we reconcile. Now, there's, great, there's all that other's boundaries and stuff that need to be there, but my friends, we've got to be peacemakers. We've got to be these people, and God will empower it. He will. In fact, Ernie Castudo understood this, and I'm going to sh- share you this last story, and we'll, and we'll pray, but... Ernie Castudo was actually a, a Dutch man who was Jewish, living in Holland and, and found himself in the midst of World War II. The Nazis came in, took over Holland, arrested him, or actually rounded up him and his fiancée. His fiancée, Hattie, actually wound up being killed in the gas chambers in Auschwitz. 
Meanwhile, Eddie found himself, Ernie, I'm sorry, found himself in the middle of a prison. And as Ernie's sitting there, he was wrestling, but it allowed a Bible. He read it over and over again. And at some point, he had come to know Jesus Christ as his Messiah. And as he read this, he came to realize it was like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that he was in the flames and Jesus was there with him. And Jesus came to him and said, will you then forgive the Germans? He's in the jail. He's like, how can I supposed to do that? They've done all these things to me. He says, will you forgive them, even bless them? Will you love them? And his response was this, I can't, Lord, but if you will help me, I will try. Please help me. Maybe some of us, that's where we're at. He's telling you, prompting you today, reconcile that relationship, make it right. And you're like, I can't, Lord, but he's saying, and just say, help me. Here's what happened to Ernie. The Lord aided him. He began to forgive his jailers. He began to live like a free man in prison. So it was amazing. He held no bitterness. The, the guards knew he had forgiven them. And in some way, even though he had faced all this abuse, he left that prison alive and he left himself whole. So much so that he was known for it that one day, the wife of the very warden of that prison showed up at his house. His very captor's wife came and said, he is dying on a cot in, a, in this hospital of a communicable disease. I'm asking you to go and see him. And he's like, what, God, I can't do this. This is ridiculous. He's disease-ridden. I'm going to get sick. And, and he lost his war with Jesus. And Jesus said, go. Walking into that place, he faced a man who had caused him torture and harm. This man was barely breathing and inside of him where he could have been celebrating the fact this man got his due. Instead, he felt this compassion. And he had no words. He didn't know what to say. And Jesus simply said, go kiss him. Give him a kiss. He's like, he's, he's, he's a disease-ridden man. I, I'm not going to kiss. He says, I'll protect you. Go give him a kiss. And this is what he writes in his book. Timidly, Ernie recalled, I leaned forward and kissed his forehead. And the man burst into tears. And as he wept, he apologized over and over for the wrong he had done. And then I knew that he didn't just need my forgiveness, he needed God's mercy. And there he shared the gospel with his old captor and amazed sat there leading this man to Christ before he went and faced him. Reconciliation breaks open the hardest of hearts and God will empower you if you need him to. But how can we call ourselves Christians who have been given so much reconciliation if we are not willing to bridge the gap ourselves to do the same? Yes, it takes two. But we need to be the ones extending the offer. Not easy, but our Lord is with us to do so. And I pray you would find that in the next weeks. Let's bow our heads. We ask for your grace, God, today. We ask for your help as we work through these things. Lord, we don't, I don't know where everybody is here, but you do. You know some people are at needing of confession some people are in a place where they need to connect with you and, and, and be able to forgive someone and others, they're there where they're trying to bless and they don't know how. Would you help them, I pray, right now? Would you give them your presence and your spirit to enable them to do so? And God, there are some in this room who, who have you. They don't have that opportunity. And so they need to be reconciled to you. God, would you begin to call their name? Would you begin to open their heart? and to help us to be reconciled to you first. In Jesus' name.
Amen.